It's a wet Sunday morning in Paris, and we're on a trip to one of the great joys available to those who love textiles and haberdashery, a visit to the Saint-Ouen flea markets. We're on the edge of the big Marché Vernaison in the company of Rebecca Devani, who runs textile tours of Paris. So we've arrived now in Marché Vernaison, which is the oldest flea market in Paris. It started in the 19th century, quite organically, when men called moon fishermen uh, used to bring the spoils uh, of their fishing trips in Paris out here to sell them on the black market. And they used to use fishing rods to steal clothing and other items uh, off washing lines under um, the light of moonlight or the lovely light of moonlight. Um, so they'd bring them out here and there was quite a collection of undesirables to be found around here. And the city of Saint Juan decided that they didn't want to have this bad reputation. So they accepted the reality of what was going on. And in here, in Marché Vernaison, they started to build little kiosks that people could rent or buy eventually. So it developed into quite a community, which we have here today. Welcome to Haptic and Hue and season four of Tales of Textiles, called Threads of Survival. My name is Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver interested in what cloth in all its forms tells us about ourselves as human beings. Textiles have an incredible power to talk to us if we can hear them. They comfort and console us, create memories and define who we are. This episode is about second-hand clothes and our changing relationship with them. Once our clothes were deeply valued and made to last with the expectation that they would be handed on and on. Today, our unwanted second-hand clothes pollute the world, damage the environment and end up in landfill if we're lucky. They are indeed threads of survival, but this is not a happy thing. They survive far too long and there is a horror to our current system of excess production. But there are also glimmers of hope as policymakers, companies and charities slowly start to establish more systems of recycling fibres and clothes. This podcast is about the past, the present and what could be the future of second-hand clothes. It's also about what really happens to the clothes you take to your local Goodwill or charity shop. Back in the flea market, everything comes from a time when quality mattered. And although it's no longer stolen off people's washing lines, these are the cast-offs of French life and Paris's couture industry. Okay, so here we are at Danielle and Lily, and Danielle uh, is in charge of this stand, which she took over from her father-in-law, who opened it up uh, just after World War II. So Danielle and Lily specialize in beads uh, and accessories for fashion, uh, beads and sequins. Um, here we're looking at the shop front, and it's filled with these gorgeous wooden boxes, um, filled to the top with treasures. Bonjour, comment allez-vous? Everything here dates from between 1850 and 1940, 
and if they didn't sell it, it would be thrown away. It's a little bit like a haberdashery. They do galons, they do trimmings, they do ribbons and they do beads. So the beads come from all over the world and they're made of all sorts of different materials. They have beads made of resin, beads made of glass, beads made of shell, everything you can think of for beads. A lot of the trimmings come from old military and church passementry makers. Just up the lane from Lily is Laure, who sells second-hand French work clothes and French linen, some of which dates back 150 years and is still eminently usable. A lot of these items were handmade, hand-spun sheets of chanvre or hemp, embroidered linen and workwear that was made of thick cotton and designed to last at least one lifetime. Law sources all of it in rural areas, and she says that in her experience, it's not the French themselves who value it. My opinion is that strangers and tourists are more interesting by all this than French people. They're not very interesting, really. Unfortunately, I think it's sad, but it's not the French, a real French culture. For, for, for them, it was just useful to, to be used, but not... They didn't know how nice it is, how nice it is, and the quality of all fabrics. These are vintage clothes, expertly curated by Laure, who has a good eye for what she thinks will appeal to the modern buyer. So my customers are uh, strangers and tourists, and I work with cinema, a lot with cinema, all quite all old film in, in costume. Uh, they often come here. To, to take um, clothes or textile or small thing to make for, for decoration. And I, I work as well with stylists who take all textile to copy to make for their uh, dit? <laughs> new collections. And although there is something joyful about wearing vintage workwear and not buying new, the modern world of mass production intrudes even here. As Laure says, fashion stylists use these clothes as inspiration to create new designs that end up in our stores and online, as garments to be sold to new generations of consumers who may not realise that they reference back to vintage French workwear and just want the latest look. market has changed a lot since it began life as a liminal place on the edge of town where second-hand clothes could be bought and sold, no questions asked, and where people on the margins of society found somewhere to be. People like the legendary Roma French guitarist Django Reinhardt, who honed his skills in the clubs around here. He and other players developed a style called jazz manouche. It survives, and often for the price of a drink, you can still catch it in the local bars and cafes.
who developed this glorious music and those who started the flea market lived at a time when every scrap of fabric was hard won and treasured. Clothes took so much time to make from raw materials that they were handed down. In France, the people who had this job were called chiffonnières, second-hand dealers, or more prosaically, rag dealers. Lisa Woollett, who comes from a long line of British dustmen or refuse collectors, recently wrote a book called Rag and Bone, a history of what we have thrown away. In it, she describes what happened to second-hand textiles in London during the mid-19th century. She says, rag gatherers supplied a more complex market through the city's vast number of rag merchants and old clothesmen. Everything would be carefully picked over. Once any saleable second-hand clothes had been separated, much of the rest could be sold on to rug makers and paper mills or to upholsterers for use as stuffing. Scraps and seams would be left to rot and then sold as manure with any leftover wool shredded and sent to the shoddy mills. Any left that was too short to spin would then be baled up and sold to farmers in Kent, where it was dug into hop fields to improve the soil. Nothing was wasted, and almost every last scrap had value. She goes on to say that with its great dust yards and armies of unofficial scavengers, the early Victorian city was close to producing zero waste. Today we live in anything but an age of zero waste. Instead, this is an era of textile excess, where clothes are cheap to buy and quickly discarded. Second-hand clothing is everywhere, and there's too much of it. Kirk Bradley works for the Salvation Army's trading company in the UK. His job involves finding destinations for some of the huge volume of clothing Britons discard every year. So we operate 230 charity shops and donation centres across the UK, and they will take donations from the general public over the threshold. Um, but in addition to this, and it's operated from our 8,000 plus textile banks that we have mainly on supermarket car parks that, um, and also we deal with a lot of the local authorities. So we'll have textile banks on local authority land. In addition to this, we work with some of our corporate partners and we get um, donations. So that's customer returns, end of line products. In addition to that, we operate various in-store take-back schemes with various retailers. And we also have an online take-back scheme where customers and members of public are able to donate textiles to us. Currently, we process and reuse around about 63,000 tonnes of textiles. The Salvation Army is just one operator in this field. And it works hard to make sure that it operates ethically and responsibly. Even so, many people listening to this will probably be surprised at what really happens to their cast-offs that they take to the charity shop or put in a textile recycling bin. 
Every day, around eight large truckloads of textiles arrive at the Salvation Army's sorting centre in the East Midlands, where it's sorted and bagged. Initially, our charity shops have options to take any products if they're low. Generally, they get enough product over their threshold from donations locally. The Salvation Army always have the ability to contact us directly for stock and there'll be certain campaigns or certain times when they do so things like Grenville fire we supplied volumes of textiles for those people that were caught up in the fire and things like the Afghan patriation period where people from who worked with the army were brought here to the UK uh, with very little we would um, supply those with textiles. UK usage accounts for just 14 percent of the textiles that come into the Salvation Army's sorting centre. Kirk's job is to find a home for the other 86%. So therefore there's a, there's a huge volume of product um, which is outstanding and needs to be dealt with. And there's a demand within, within less um, affluent countries around the world that are crying out for, for Western clothes and second-hand cheaper clothing. So really, without this export market, there'd be significant volumes of textiles going into the landfill. And just to give you kind of some sort of clarity of, of where those, those kind of destinations are, around about 40% of it will go either into Eastern Europe or the rest of Europe. And then the other 40% will go around to the Middle East. And, there's, and then there's various anomalies of small, small donations going, or small products, sorry, going to other countries around the world. These clothes are sold wholesale to customers in Poland and the Ukraine. And then, if they go to the Middle East, they're sorted into different grades and distributed onwards to different parts of the world. The Salvation Army checks carefully to make sure that these textiles are responsibly used. We need to make sure that they fall within our our remit, our ethos, and within the law in those countries as well. It's very important. And as part of part of the business we have, you know, we class ourselves as custodians of the pla- of the planet, and therefore we need to make sure that, you know, where possible, everything can be, if not if not reused for for to be reworn, that but will be recycled. And some of the the other things to understand is these these customers are ours are actually paying for these products, so they need they will make us a, a, the best of that product as they can. And therefore, if there's products that aren't rewearable, there's various markets for that, including flocking, you know, the product can go into a soundproofing, carpet underlay, those sorts of markets that are, are, are already there. And, you know, we, we ensure that our customers act responsibly with the product that we give them. And therefore, you know, we're comfortable, you know, with the checks that we do, that, as I say, 98% of the product that we give them is either used to be reworn or is um, recycled. This is not always the case, as Kirk knows. Second-hand clothing and unsold clothing from rich northern countries ends up polluting poorer southern countries. Some of the most shocking images come from the Atacama Desert in Chile, a beautiful and remarkable environment which is the driest place on earth. Horrifically, It has been turned into a fast fashion graveyard with piles of unwanted and unusable old clothes from North America and beyond, threatening a fragile ecosystem and the health of local people. Yeah, I think there is there is certainly operators out there that that will do that. I mean, the 
the the secondhand clothes market is, is huge around the world. You know, the UK market is fairly well governed, I would say, with membership of the likes of the Textile Recycling Association and the Charity Recycling Association. Unfortunately, there will continue to be um, those that, that exploit the systems, but we can only do what we can do. And what we're doing is, is the right thing to ensure that the customers that we use around the world are doing things in, in, in the correct manner and ethically and fall within what we at the Salvation Army believe they should be doing. Accra in Ghana is home to West Africa's largest second-hand clothes market, the famous Cantamanto market. Harriet Adjabang knows it well. Mondays and Wednesdays are normally the market days where bills get into the market, they get opened and it's it's so much it's really so much that goes on there. It's very exciting to see how the retailers get their bills, open the bills, um, young girls who are headquarters or we call them Kaya years in Ghana carry the bills from one end to the other and it's quite interesting like the activities within the market is really interesting to see yes harriet is a fashion writer and researcher who is currently on a fellowship in the u.s she intends to set up an online sustainable fashion community information center as her follow-on project in ghana to help educate the textile industry about sustainable solutions, which is a million miles away from what we have at present. What she is describing is how the clothing bales arrive in the market twice a week. There is excitement, but this is a tough game for the market people who live on the margins. So what happens is that they take loans, they go to the banks, there's small savings and loans organizations or financial institutions, they take loans to buy the bills. And it's more like a game of gamble. <laughs> you are not sure you are buying something that you have absolutely no idea about. But I spoke to one of the retailers. He mentioned that the bills actually are segmented. So you have the ones that is between 50 to $100. Then you have the $100 to $200 bill. And you have from 200 to 250 or within just within that range. So the higher it goes, the better the quality. Do you understand? So depending on how much money you have in your hands is what you are getting. In Ghana, the bales come from the UK, the US, Canada and other European charities and textile dealers. And the truth of the matter is that many of the suppliers just want shot of this stuff and they don't really think about what's suitable for the Ghanaian market, which impacts on the traders. They always complain about the fact that certain times when they buy the bills, you are optimistic about the fact that you are going to open this bill, find really interesting things that you are going to sell. But unfortunately, you open the bills and realize that almost 90% of the pieces in the bill cannot be sold. 
it's just very few of them you've gone for loans how are you going to pay for these loans if if you don't sell it so it's like a game of gamble and it's one of the things that breaks my heart a lot because most people's lives are dependent on this business module if you are taking loans to actually buy these bills and you're not getting any returns i feel it's a bit unfair if you ask me and the unfairness which in my view is a mild word for what harriet describes doesn't end there. Here's what happens to the clothes that can't be sold in the Cantamanto market. It's choking us. It's crazy. So when the market women are done sorting out what they want to sort out, they sell whatever they want to sell, they leave the rest in the markets where the waste pickers come pick them up. And even the process of transporting them to the land to an authorized landfill is also a problem because some of them get dropped off on the road. They get dumped at um, unauthorized dumping sites. So you go to our beaches, you find lots of them in our beaches. They get swept to the shores of the beaches. And it's just everywhere. Clothes are just everywhere in your face. Everywhere. They clog our gutters. And when it flats, it's crazy. You, you, you literally find all these fast fashion giants. You have pieces from them just scattered all over the place and staring you right in the face because there is really nowhere to take them. Harriet had never seen a clean public beach until she left the Accra region. She also knows that the environmental cost of all this clothing is high with mountains of textiles in unauthorised dumps on the edge of the slum districts smouldering, as people try to set fire to them, let alone the impact on wildlife and sea life. This is the depressing present, where our old clothes, which we might think we are giving away responsibly, in effect end up dumped on poorer countries, often with unregulated systems where they pollute, harm, and truly become threads of survival long beyond their useful lives. But the future doesn't have to be like this if we don't want it to be. Harriet sees that a better future is possible for the Cantamanto market. Interestingly, she doesn't want it closed or the trade in used clothing banned as it has been in Rwanda. There is actually a silver lining in it if the activities are regulated properly because it's a business that most people are dependent on. That is where they get their meals from. I don't think generally, I don't think it's actually a bad business. If we look at it properly, the institutions invest in research into the the module to properly regulate it. I think it, it will be a source of employment and it will, I want to use the word, it will increase economic independence. Yes. There is tremendous energy and the joy of hunting for a bargain in these places. Across Africa, there are lots of names for these clothes and the way they are sold, like bend-down boutiques, or sometimes they're called dead white people's clothing, or in Mozambique, the clothing of calamity. Harriet believes the best way forward is for Ghana to work with the fact that it receives the fashion waste of the West. Let's assume, or we've accepted that Ghana has become a dumping ground more like it so now it's more like a landfill 
than an actual business module so it's more like okay we are going to just make the pieces whether or not they are good or in we always have a way a place to dump them but the opportunity in this is that if this brand actually focus more on establishing a proper fashion waste recycling plant in ghana it will do us a lot of good so yeah bring us the waste you are free to bring out the waste because you've established a, a proper recycling fashion waste recycling plant where all these pieces will be will be recycled into some other things and it will offer job opportunities to people within the secondhand supply chain back in the countries that generate all these textiles there's also much more that can be done to stop clothes being dumped on countries like Ghana and Chile Here's Kirk Bradley of the Salvation Army's trading arm. We saw some five, six years ago that this market needed to change. You know, having conversations with with some of our retail customers, those within the fast fashion industry. And therefore, as a business, we started to look at how we could support our partners and how we could help in the environment. You know, at the end of the day, basically, as a country and, and, and across the world, I think in certain areas, you know, we, we overconsume. There needs to be a change with our buying habits and we need to consume less and look for altern- or, or look for alternative methods. However, there's always going to be a requirement for clothing, and therefore there's always need to be some, some, some way that we can preserve the natural resources that we have in the world and recycle as much, as much as we can of the man-made products. One of the changes that's helping this is the introduction of a revolutionary sorting machine by the Salvation Army. It automatically sorts textiles at speed by quality, and by fiber. How the machine actually works is we're able to sort clothing. We will grade them into A, B and C. A is, a, is what we class as a shop grade, so that goes into our charity shop. B grade will go into our export market and C grade is deemed to be unwearable. And that product is placed into our uh, fiber sort machine and it goes through a process, goes through a, a near infrared camera, which can identify the fiber composition. And then a camera that checks the color and analyzes the color. So this machine is able to sort up to 4,000 different recipes. So that's color, fiber type. So therefore, if we wanted to remove or wanted to take out 50 cotton, 50 polyester products, then we could actually put them through the machine. The machine will identify those products. And that makes it much simpler to supply recyclers with the product they can use. And it does it very quickly because it's an automated system. So at the moment, it's easy to find recyclers, for example, of 100% cotton and 100% wool garments. So yes, we can we can put that through the machine and then we can isolate that product and send that product to different customers. And the more complex issues are the, the multi-fabric products. So as soon as you start getting, you know, poly, cotton, viscous, nylon, all those sorts of blends into, into a garment, it becomes more challenging to, to recycle. So there's definitely a challenge still here for us to do. The technology isn't, isn't there yet, but there's, there's an awful lot of work going on behind the scenes with um, chemical processes to try to be able to remove polyester from cotton. One of the people the Salvation Army's fibre sort machine is now supplying is someone who's appeared on this podcast before. If you listen to The Once and Future King in Series 3, It told the story of Shoddy with the help of John Parkinson, who grew up in the Shoddy trade. This is a 200-year-old process 
developed in the heavy woolen district in West Yorkshire. A machine called a devil ripped old woolen garments and rags to pieces, which were then carded, blended with new wool, and re-spun into yarn that was woven into new garments. The last shoddy mill closed in Britain over 20 years ago, but John, ever persistent, has been searching for a way to restart shoddy production in West Yorkshire. The trade, the industry, the world's crying out for it, and we're determined to uh, not just protect the, the industry and the craft, but to re-energise it. And we want to learn new techniques as well as bringing the best of the old. We want new generations, people that uh, can bring new technologies and new ideas to train new generations to, to keep this trade going and to do it better than we can. We left John last year with a bit of a cliffhanger on his hands, a race against time to find a partner who could house his shoddy machinery, provide some wool waste from their own production to feed into the process, and maybe make use of some recycled wool themselves. Well, he succeeded in finding his partner in Kamira, the makers of Moquette, bus and metro seats round the world. The day I spoke to him, he and his wife, Linda, had just succeeded in making the first batch of shoddy in Britain on the new machines. Coincidence, whatever coincidences are, but today was the first day of actually putting some hard waste through the, uh, through the machinery. It's been quite a day, really, and we've always like a few little things, adjustments and tweaks and teething and all that kind, but it just did one small batch, 120 kilos of roll ends and piece ends that were chimeras, it was their wool cloth, and it went, went through really well and, and made a really nice product, and the machines performed as I expected them to, or, or beyond my expectations, really, so today's been the the first day that we've processed, the first day that the shoddy trade has come back to the UK after being out for 22 years with the last one when it was, they were just hanging on by the fingertips. So um, quite a momentous day, really, in, in, in many ways. That's a huge step forward for John and Linda. But this isn't a simple task. In the old days, the shoddy trade depended on an entire integrated market of rag and bone men, rag sorters, shoddy manufacturers and critically garment producers who understood how to use recycled yarn. All of that has gone and has to be reconstructed. So we're building the supply chain, we're building the market, we've brought the machine back but it's not like it was in the old days, it's a new kind of way and, and to be fair you know, we're finding our way in this new world where rag merchants are there. There is a market developing that there's still a lot of knowledge gaps in terms of what can be done and what can't be done and what might be expected. And this will take time, but at least a start has been made and John is open to trying all kinds of ways to establish new uses for recycled wool. One thing is certain. His joy at seeing shoddy created never leaves him. Now watch the processes happening right from the, the sorting 
and then the, what we call pulling, you're shredding, you're opening up, and then as it goes from blending into carding and spinning and then making into new stuff, and I'm watching it, and it's it's just a magic show. It's like, even though it's all I've known, I still you know, stand and gaze in wonder, how can we do, how can we turn this stuff into this? How is this happening in front of my eyes? And that, you know, just the, the excitement that when you get a new project to work on, a new, a new yarn to make, a new colour, a new, that just, just the, the potential, just the, you know, being involved with this amazing transformation is, is just a, a joy and a privilege to be part of. Kirk Bradley says the technology has come a long way in five years, and he believes it will travel even further in the next five years. And appropriately, for a Salvation Army man, he has his own holy grail firmly fixed in his mind. Textile to textile or fibre to fibre is kind of the holy grail. You know, we saw that as a significant opportunity and our vision is to be the first organisation in the UK to scale this up. So we're looking at what we class as a fibre farm. And, you know, that fibre farm will be able to take these mixed blends, 100% polyester, and, and meet the requirements of the growing recycling market. And the fibre sort machine is kind of the first step of making that a reality. However, there's still a lot of work and, and discovery to be done. So the, the dream is for us is to have this fibre farm and be able to give raw material back into the fibre to fibre industry and the fashion industry. And that would be part of Harriet Adjabeng's dream for Ghana too. Once she's got the fashion industry and Western governments to clean up the dumps in West Africa. But for now, she has some sound advice for today's consumers. We, the customers, also have strong power to ask uncomfortable questions. When you're donating clothes, where are these clothes going? When you're even investing in pieces, are these pieces, I feel that when you're buying something, when you're donating something, ask yourself, if this thing gets sold to me the next time, would I want to wear it? So invest in good clothes so that when you are when you are donating them or giving them out, you know that this thing is going is going to somebody who will value it or someone who will sell it and get some really good returns on it. So I believe we the customers also have the power to ask our brands uncomfortable questions and try as much as possible to invest in quality clothes that when we are donating them, we know that we are supporting a good cause. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haptic and Hue. And a huge thank you to Rebecca Devani, Kirk Bradley, Harriet Adjabeng and John Parkinson. May all their dreams come true. If you would like to see pictures of the processes and machines, as well as the horror of the clothing dumps in West Africa and Chile, or a full script of this podcast, head over to Haptic and Hue's website at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hue is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production supported entirely by its listeners, who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee. If you'd like to contribute, you'll find the button on our website. 
Haptic and Hugh will be back on the first Thursday of next month with a wonderful tale from a community of self-sufficient textile artists who thrived in a tough seafaring town on America's East Coast. I'll leave you this time with a poem by Mae Swenson, an American poet of the last century. I searched for poems about Africa's waste dumps and recycling, but came up empty-handed. This one, called Goodbye Goldeneye, though, I think is a gem. Rags of black plastic, shred of a kite, caught on the telephone cable above the bay, has twisted in the wind all winter, summer, fall. Leaves of birch and maple, brown paws of the oak, have all let go but this. Shiny black mylar on stem strong as fish line. The busted kite string whipped around the wire and knotted. How long will it cling there? Through another spring? Long barge nudged up channel by a snorting tug. Its blunt front aproned with rot black tires. What is being hauled in slime green drums? The herring gulls that used to feed their young on the shore. Puffy, wide-beaked babies standing spraddled-legged and crying are not there this year. Instead, steam shovel, bulldozer, cement mixer rumble over sand, beginning the big new beach house. There'll be a hot dog stand, flush toilets, trash, plastic and glass, greasy cartons, crushed beer cans barrels of garbage for water rats to pick through. So goodbye, golden eye, and grebe, and scalp, and loon. Goodbye, morning walks beside the tide, tinkling among clean pebbles, blue mussel shells, and snail shells that look like staring eyeballs. Goodbye, kingfisher, little green, black-crowned heron, snowy egret, and goodbye, faithful pair of swans that used to glide god and goddess, shapes of purity over the wide water.